0: Welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast.
1: A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What they
2: trade in is not wheat, they trade in famine. A little dose of revolutionary optimism.
3: I think it's really important to
4: sort of express solidarity
5: globally. It really is a deal by corporations for corporations.
4: The union forever defending our rights down with the black If
0: you think the ABC's left wing do listen to this program. Solidarity Breakfast seven thirty to nine AM Saturdays,
1: three CR eight fifty five AM, streaming, and three CR Digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course the website
6: solidaritybreakfast.org.au
4: Solidarity Forever
6: Good morning, Lynn. Good morning, Lally. Good morning,
1: listeners. Solidarity forever indeed.
6: How are you going this morning?
1: Uh, Very well, very well. Now this morning we're um, going to devote our program to war. I know, I know, everybody's sick to death of the pre-ANZAC hype, but we thought that we shouldn't just ignore that hype, rather we should discuss what's the truth that lies behind the hype and arm ourselves so that when we're listening we can think. Ah, yes, and understand more deeply what's actually going on. And we bring this program in the spirit of fighting against capitalist wars. Um, I think it's one thing to fight for something that you believe in or that you believe will actually, um, you know, bring about a needed change, but it's quite another to fight someone else's war. We're listening this morning to Professor Bruce Skates, who's been involved in historical research, on Australia's war past, and he'll tell us something about the atmosphere of official history-making and why he's been involved in it. And secondly, we'll hear from our dear old friend Humphrey McQueen, who'll talk to us about the war economy and provide some enlightenment as to why there are continual wars, especially since the war that's being commemorated as its 100th anniversary, the Great War, which we remember was the war to end all wars. Um, before we get on to that though I think it 's worth a pause to remember that that war the one that 's having its hundredth anniversary um, one year after the great anzac um, Anzac attack in in Turkey that was a at Gallipoli that was you know the the thing that we, that people talk about um, creating being the birth of Australian nationhood, that war actually divided our nation. Um, and in, in a way that I don't, it was never been divided before, and I don't know if it has since. At first, there were heaps of volunteers for the war, but then as the casualties rose, as people began to realise exactly what they were in for, this war, um, people didn't want to go anymore. And so um, a Labour government led by Billy Hughes um, decided to conscript Australian soldiers. And just to be clear, Conscription means forcing young men into the army um, by law, and uh, so that to send them overseas to the killing fields. The the most of the Labour Party were actually opposed to conscription, and so in nineteen sixteen a massive battle took place uh, throughout society about this question, and there was a referendum. The referendum was defeated, uh, and Hughes then sort of was bit driven out of the Labor Party, left the Labor Party, set up another party, which he called the Nationalist Party, note the name, and, <laughs> held, a, <laughs> exactly, yes, and so. held a second referendum in 1914, which was again defeated. So I just think it's important for us to remember that this great war that they're going on about um, actually was rejected by a majority of Australians in two referenda, one year after the other. So let's anyway. So I thought just while we're on this question of the of conscription, and I I thought I'd like to read a poem, which um, is called the Blood Vote. It was part of the No campaign in the conscription battle, and um, it was made into a poster, a small poster, and. When I first started working in unions around the end of the 70s and early 80s, uh, this um, little poster was in a lot of union offices. It was sort of hiding around in, you know, on the back door of the union library or or, or a meeting room. Um, I wonder how many of these there are around in unions now. <laughs> the, the, the poster is got written across the top with dripping blood, the blood vote, and then there's a picture of a woman um, in, you know, full Edwardian, long skirt, bla- you know, white blouse, hat, and she's putting a yes um, vote in the conscription ballot box and she's looking quite pensive. Anyway, and so this is the poem. Why is your face so white, Mother. Why do you choke for breath? Oh, I have dreamt in the night, my son, that I doomed a man to death. Why do you hide your hand, mother, and crouch above it in dread? It bared a dreadful brand, my son, with the dead man's blood, tis red. I hear his widow cry in the night, I hear his children weep, and always within my sight, oh God, that dead man's blood doth leap." They put the dagger into my grasp. It seemed but a pencil then. I did not know it was a friend gasp for the priceless blood of men. They gave me the ballot paper, the grim death warrant of doom, and I smugly sentenced the man to death in that dreadful little room. I put it inside the box of blood, nor thought of the man I'd slain till at midnight came like a whelming flood, God's word and the brand of Cain. Oh, little son, my own little son, pray God for your mother's soul that the scarlet stain may be white again in God's great judgment roll.
6: Oh, that is heart-rendering. It is heart-rendering, isn't it? But, um... Maybe we just um, say hello to the listeners and, and just say that we, we actually, at the risk of um, stating the obvious, this is all about the Anzac Day that's coming up and the, and, and the great romanticization of the war and all this media hype that's going on and we're doing a more realistic assessment of it. Yeah, so, I think so. When, when you're ready to play... Um, the, the Bruce's contribution I mean.
1: yeah so we're going to play we're going to hear from Bruce um, uh, who's uh, Professor Bruce Gates, who's the director of the National Center for Australian Studies at um, monash University, and this is uh, some of a keynote address that he gave at the recent labor history conference called Fighting for peace um, the story I want, the
5: story I want to tell you
1: sorry well I just wanted to say that in this first clip he's talking about the effect of war, to some extent, the effect of war on Aborigines. But first of all, I just think it's also important to talk about Anzac Day and the way that it's become so popular and that this isn't an accident. It became so popular because actually John Howard, you know, he he was having he got involved in the history wars. The history wars in the first place were about Aborigines, were about trying to deny removal of Aborigines, trying to deny that there were frontier wars. He pretty much lost that battle because as he was having it, historians were busy bringing up more and more information. And so then then, uh, what he did was he decided, if I can't win that war, I'll just divert attention away from it and, we'll, uh, and so he poured millions and millions and millions of dollars into promoting Anzac Day, and we still have that legacy now. So let's have a listen to some, to some, some of Bruce's... Um, and I thought, you know, and he thought too, obviously, because it was very close to the beginning of his speech, that he talked about an Aboriginal family and, and its effect, at, at Anzac, uh, it, yeah, Anzac's effect on this particular family.
5: The story I want to tell you, we want to tell you about today, comes from Cape Barren Island in Bass Strait, just across the water. At the outbreak of the Great War, some 28 men in, were deemed eligible for military service, 21 enlisted. That's many times more the national average. Now the records don't tell us why Jane Maynard here, Private James Maynard, went to war. Perhaps, as with many Indigenous servicemen, it was the quest to secure full citizenship. Perhaps, like many white diggers, the hope of travel and adventure. Well, that was not what going to happen, was it? More than likely, it was the chance of earning a regular wage. James Maynard was wounded twice in action 1917, Passchendaele, 1918, the attack on the Hindenburg Line. He came home a deeply damaged man. But James, as you can see, wasn't the only Maynard to serve overseas. His brothers, William and Frank, returned, never returned to Cape Barren Island. Frank was killed in 1916. He's buried at Poissier. William went missing during the Battle of Bullecourt, and William is missing still. The body of that boy, and he was a boy, was never recovered from the killing fields. So, from the end of the Great War, from the end and right through the 1920s, the mother writes time and time and time again to the military authorities, hoping to learn something of William's fate, longing for a photograph of his final resting place, craving something to remember him by. This letter, written in an unsteady hand in 1918, a year after her son went missing. Two pocketbooks, a penny, a halfpenny, five postcards. That's all I've got. My poor old Will. Eva Maynard's letter reminds us of the pain, the grief, the unspeakable loss the Great War visited upon an entire generation. But, of course, war wasn't the only way that Aboriginal people, Islander people, lost their children, was it? In the 1930s, this small, devastated community was devastated once again as white authorities relocated children, including the children of returned servicemen, to white families and white institutions on the mainland. Cape Barren Island surely was a community laid to waste in the aftermath of war. Let's not forget that.
1: Very chilling.
6: I know. Yes, Bruce, let's not forget that. Yes, it's amazing how people never get reminded of the horror Mm. The impact of the horror oh. of the war, oh. uh, locally overseas, you know, always w- what struck me, being a person who was at the receiving end of all the stuff from a country that was the receiving end, is they never thought that people they were killing had families. It, it's a, a thought no. that, that never occurs to them.
1: No, I, and I think that that's a that's a point, isn't it, about um about about the peace movement in a sense and about war, um, looking at war generally, is that. It affects everybody, and and Bruce very is very very much aware of that. Um, in this next clip that we're going to hear, he's talking about the development of an Australian memorial at one of the French killing fields, one of the French, you know, grave sites, Villers Bretonneux. Um, he describes the pressure that's been put on historians to develop this memorial. Um, can we have a listen to that? Yep, sure.
5: Now, there are some people who believe that labor historians have no place at all in the centenary of Anzac. We represent an alternative tradition, one that opposes militarism, eschews chauvinistic nationalism, deplores the criminal waste of war, and that is true. But as this conference has surely suggested, we cannot simply ignore the huge travesty of history that is erupting all around us. At this point, surely, we cannot afford principled isolation. We must try to be part of a national, indeed a global, conversation, and we must do what we can to shift the narrative.
1: So I think that that's a really important point, and, and now he's going to talk
5: about Villers-Bretonneux. The Australian Memorial at Villa bretonneux built to commemorate our country's appalling losses on the Somme. The second case I want to examine today is a narrative still unfolding, and I'm going to keep it very brief. Suffice to say that a number of Labour historians, Jay Winter, Ray Francis, Ross McMullen, and myself amongst them, have been asked to provide historical content for the new interpretive centre that's planned for the Somme. We are bracing ourselves for what's bound to follow. You see, we happen to believe that remembering the Great War should be a transnational project, rather like the European project itself. A hundred years since the carnage that tore Europe apart It's surely time to speak across national borders, to focus on the common tragedy shared by combatants and civilians on all sides of that conflict. Now, this does not sit well with the brief that the new Interpretive Centre should demonstrate, I quote, the way Australian forces, and John Monash in particular, won the war. (laughs) Nor am I encouraged by the comments from one senior government official, There are are certain feelings we want to instil in visitors to the centre, he told us, and that effective use of history is probably worrying enough, but even more worrying are the feelings he's talking about. Subdued pride, moderated by just a touch of sadness. (laughs) Can you ever be proud of a conflict that claimed the lives of countless millions, and I wonder, really, is a touch of sadness quite enough? The exhibition space planned for Villa Bretno will feature a number of biographical sketches. Today I want to tell you two of the stories we've recommended to government. The first, as befits this conference, is that of a Labor stalwart. Uh, Arthur Ray, founder of the Shearers' Union in Australia and in New Zealand, one of the first Labor members of Parliament, a champion of women's political and industrial rights. A fervent internationalist, Ray called for a negotiated peace and he opposed the introduction of conscription. He had also three sons who went to war, and two of them died. It was almost certainly Arthur Ray here who composed Young Billy's epitaph. It's an inscription set in stone at the entrance of the Villa Bettenau Memorial. It challenges every visitor as you walk up to that site. And what does it say? Another life lost, hearts broken, for what? By telling Arthur's story, we affirm the dissenting voice at the core of Labor history. The Great War was not some cosy consensus, as the makers of those centenary soapies, Anzac Girls and Downton Abbey would have us believe. It divided this country, it laid to waste a generation, and it laid the basis of an even more terrible war to follow. And by far the greatest victory for democracy to emerge in that war wasn't the defeat of Prussian militarism, but the defeat of militarists in this country led by Labour Rat. Billy Hughes. The second story you won't be familiar with, unlike the previous one, and it's come from the 100 Stories project. Charlie Kingston's the man at the very centre of this photograph. When this picture was taken, he was the officer commanding the Wargraves attachment at Villa Bretno. Indeed, Kingston and his men laid the basis of the cemetery we see there today. Now, I don't need to explain to you how gruesome that work must have been, the recovery of bodies scattered across the killing fields, all in a stage of advanced decay. Kingston and his men were all volunteers to do that work. No doubt they stayed on in France for many reasons, but several, Charlie Kingston included, felt a deep sense of obligation. Burying a man you had known with some semblance of dignity was an attempt to restore decency in a war where all decency was lost, but Charlie, like Arthur Ray, presents us with another dissenting narrative. This war's over, guys. He tells his prisoners. He tells his men, "Don't call me sir." He dresses the German prisoners he's allocated in Australian uniforms, sparing them the abuse of the locals, and he takes them on joy rise into Amiens, shouting them a drink, several drinks, actually. Under Kingston's command, the Wargrave's depot at Villa Bretno goes by the name of Captain Charlie's Boozer. That's what all the locals call it. And it's frequented by what the locals called loose women. Charlie turns a blind eye while soldiers entertained women in the compound and borrowed war Commission vehicles for excursions into town. And when he's not burying the dead, Charlie's mixing what he called the Villa Bretno Cocktail, a potent rum of rum, a potent blend of rum, whiskey and sauce, of an alcoholic intensity known only in France. In 1922, the Australian government initiates an official inquiry into the management of the compound. Kingston is accused of behavior unbecoming an officer and sent home. He is sent home by the same military authorities who, a couple of years before, had decorated him for bravery. Now, of course, we can read Charlie's story in a number of different ways. Perhaps he was a man struggling with the demons, three years on the Somme, three years at Passchenda, the grim work of exhumations, perhaps. Perhaps, and I think this is most likely, he'd simply had enough. No doubt you'll have your own take on this particular story. But I would like to think that there was a great humanity in befriending those German prisoners and discarding the brutal authority that ordered men to their deaths. And whatever the truth of Charlie Kingston is, it's surely a story like Arthur Ray's story, that we should tell at Brilla Burton no. But will we have a chance to do that? We've just received the amended list from the Department of Veterans Affairs overseeing the design of the new interpretive centre. The name of Charlie Kingston has been struck off. The name of Billy Hughes appears in its place.
1: So that's amazing. It's, isn't it's it? amazing, isn't it? And and don't you think you know it's such a fabulous attitude to history that we must tell all of these stories, even if they're not the, you know they're clearly not the airbrushed stories that people want to hear. They're the stories of the real life people who Ooh. were actually involved, and they tell us so much more about why we would or wouldn't want to be involved in future wars, um, don't they? And just on that. Um, Bruce and a team of um, historians at Monash University have created online um, a, a, a site called One Hundred Stories, and these are one hundred stories uh, from Anzac Day. They're absolutely brilliant. They are real life stories, a bit you know, not like the ones that we've just heard, but they're real life stories, um, and the, and they're very moving to read, um, you know, and and very enlightening. I I have felt as much antagonism as as i'm sure many of of mm. you have felt to the whole anzac hype um and i was resistant even to go to that page but when i did go uh, and read some of the stories i found it very enriching mm. so i can only suggest that you know if you, people might find it enriching to visit um One of the stories that's on that site um, is going to be talked about by Bruce now. And I just want to say before we start the clip that this was accompanied by a photo um, of a young man with half of his face missing.
5: So the image I want to begin with isn't that familiar image of the young, confident soldier, proud and handsome in his uniform, but an image of one of those men when he comes back. He's scarred by the experience of battle. He's aged prematurely by the terrible things he has seen, and he has done. He's not just a victim, and he's struggling to adjust to a new life as a civilian. Colleagues and comrades, this is Bertram Burns, Private Burns. The service record tells us enlisted at the age of 24, served in France, was wounded in action on two separate occasions. The second wound did this, September 1918, the attack on Mont Saint Quentin. Private Burns's service dossier runs for, what, 22 pages, that's all. There's only one letter from him, one chance for him to speak. It's this letter, written in 1938, asking to purchase duplicates of service medals lost in a bushfire. Why? He wants to wear them on Anzac Day. Reading the service dossier tells you very little about Private Burns or his family or his wound or what it actually did to him and those he loved. The repatriation files are so much more substantial. Three separate files, hundreds and hundreds of pages, and they tell us so much more. What does that sparse entry in the service dossier, G-S-W-FACE, really mean? The facial report in the repatriation file refers to much facial disfigurement. Well, I actually think Private Burns puts it much better than that. My face is practically shot away. The wound was so severe that he dribbled constantly and there was a discharge from his nose. His disfigurement, which was much worse before that operation, was such that employers would not take him on. He was shunned, he was ostracised, he took up a block of land as a soldier settler, he found himself too weak to work it. Reading the service record, you learn nothing of that, nothing of his family's post-war ordeal. The repatriation records will tell you that and they will tell you so much more. At the moment, the experience of war is recorded in a kind of shorthand, and that, I think, lends itself to a proud, heroic narrative. But the repatriation files, I think, help us to imagine what those of us who've never been to war can't possibly understand. You read these men's accounts, often in their own words, and you can begin to imagine what it must have been like to spend days and nights in continuous fever and delirium, a shaking and a shivering, as that file puts it. You can hear the hushed voices of what they called the whispering men, gassed men whose lungs were slowly corroding, who could barely breathe, who vomited up their meals, who fell over with giddiness and who finally lost confidence in themselves. You can see the physical and the psychological scars of what was justly called a war-wrecked generation and how their injuries also destroyed the lives of those around them, not just for the duration of the service record, but every day, of their all-too-often short lives. Leroy, that gassed man in the previous slide, turns to drink, and he turns on his wife as well. Now, you might think that's an unmitigated tragedy, an endless catalogue of horrors, but history is never just that. There is, I think, a great dignity in Bertram Burns. Look at how the man dressed that day that they took his photograph. Read about the efforts he makes to provide for his family. And remember that this is a man who thought he should be seen, seen in a procession on Anzac Day. His battles didn't end in 1918.
6: I just would like to say, yeah. as someone who worked in a repat hospital, mm-hmm. I have seen the long-term traumas of all these men who went to war. It, just listening to all this just brings me back to that, hospital mm. and I'm thinking, I don't need to listen to this but you know it's it's real. That's the thing. The sadness and the very long term impact is not recognized. That's why they still have repat hospitals as such, although they've amalgamated with Austin here in Victoria. But the the impact on the family and he mentioned they turned on the women, domestic violence. And the US, that's one of the figures that they talk about. Domestic violence is extremely high among returned soldiers than the normal the the, the non Army community, so to speak,
1: you know I have this in my own family. My grandfather, on my father's side, was in the first world war. Um, he was in the first world war sort of twice because he got shot up and then sent off to a hospital, patched up and then sent back again uh, and where he got cholera and um and he subsequently you know was violent with his his wife, my father's mm. mother mm. and um and and she amazing woman in 1925 actually left him with my father and um but anyway but my whole um upbringing was that my grandfather was this awful man who beat his wife which is why my father grew up without a father that was sort of the way that Mm. my father always put it to me you know I never had a father he always felt a bit sorry for himself about that and um but then it wasn't until, in fact, we investigated a bit of history and we found out that this man who beat the mother, and, you know, not apologising for it, but this man had, as I said before, been sent twice off mm. to the... You know, the first time he was an 18-year-old boy. Um, and and anyway, so... Um, and and the the question of the families is really vital, and I think it's wonderful that the repatriation records have now yes. been kept. And apparently, yeah. Bruce also talked in this in this sp- keynote speech that he gave actually about the battle that was fought to keep the repatriation the repatriation mm. records because they're massive, as you will probably know, yes. Lally. Oh, was massive great files that go through people's yes. lives for years and years and years and years, and there's hundreds and hundreds of them. And there was a big push just to destroy them. But mm. historians and archivists managed to win that battle, and the the, the files have been um, kept. And what's more, uh, these historians who've been working on Anzac Day celebration, uh, yeah, commemorations, have managed to get a few million dollars, which Bruce says is nothing like enough, but at least it'll make a start, to digitise some of the records so people will be able to look at the repatriation records online of their own families and get a sense of their backgrounds. Um, just, we'll just end um, with, a,
5: with another clip from Bruce. We've looked at how men survived the war. The repatriation records tell us how they struggled to survive the peace. And that, I hasten to add, was not just a man's story as this remarkable record, sorry, letter from the widow of Don Carney suggests. She tells us what it's like to live on the poverty line, pleading for just a little help at Christmas, offering that insight into the intermediate economy of the poor. Women's voices are threaded all through the repatriation records, and it's a woman's voice I want to end on today. This is a letter Louisa Campbell wrote to the department not long after the death of her husband. Lieutenant A.B. Campbell came back from the war with severe respiratory problems, and she writes with an intimacy that I find quite disarming. My husband's death was the death of all my happiness. He hid his sufferings with a smile. Now, the circumstances of Lieutenant Campbell's death are by no means clear, but it was a violent death, as violent a death as one could ever encounter in war. Lieutenant Campbell's body was cut in two when he fell from a railway carriage in Sydney. He may have opened that door because he was desperate for air, with both his lungs collapsing, every breath was an effort, or, as the coroner's report here implies, he may have chosen a quicker death than the one that was in store. What is beyond dispute is that Louisa Campbell believed his death was directly attributable to his war service. He gave his life for his country, she writes, as surely as if he he died in battle. We did our bit. The department thought otherwise. Campbell's death was not deemed war-related, the pension was assessed accordingly and perhaps that's the most important message of these extraordinary records it is never just soldiers in uniform who bear the cost of war
6: yes that brings me right back to the Rebat hospital the number yes. of people who came back and were full of tb mm. tuberculosis and some people just couldn't breathe well it... and oh those memories i just Mm. It's so traumatic for Tramatic. people. So even today, well, obviously even, you know, for you, yeah. as a little oh, bit working. with Never um, forgot
1: that. And you know, I mean, you talk about TB, but also another whole stream of men who came back with syphilis. Yes, um, and anyway, mental health issues. Yeah, and mental health issues, and all sorts of things. Uh, anyway, I think we're pretty much. We one, are. One yes, time. that was some. So, so going. Yeah, thank you, Bruce Skates. Uh, Professor thank Bruce you, yes. Skates from Monash University, and everybody. If you want to uh, read more of these very sad but um, uplifting stories, I think they're uplifting too because they're they're real life stories, and because you know, as as Lali said before, as Bruce said, you know, we. When we think about war, I think even those of us who are opposed to these ridiculous wars, we don't often think about the aftermath of of what what happens to people when they actually come back. Um, So now I think it's time for Marcus. One quick announcement
6: then we go to Marcus. Oh, okay. Really quick announcement because we haven't had an announcement yet. And then Marcus will be followed by Uncle Kevin. 3CR, radio that's independent, progressive and making a difference.
7: On today's edition of Rank and File Radio and Community Radio 3CA, 855 AM, we will go to the second part of the interview with Davey Thomason last week. uh, He described his time as a militant construction worker and time as a BLF organiser during the time of the Green Bands in the 1970s. Today he will look at the role he plays in supporting and fighting for the rights of the Indigenous people. And during the period of the green Bands, it was at, uh, a time when you were arrested and uh, sent before the courts.
3: Well, I, I was—I'd uh, been arrested as a young seaman okay. back in the 60s. 60, uh, I come to Aussie on a, on an English ship called the the Nottingham in 1966, just after the, the big big national seamen strike. It was my first ship after the strike, which I was on a ship during the strike. The, I was on a ship called uh, the Suffolk. Uh, all p and o new zealand shipping company uh, federal boats and uh, so my first ship to Aussie after the 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 seamen strike was the was the no- the nottingham and uh, it was uh it was a time when when we had challenged the the, the, the union leadership the national union Seamen that were basically run by the ship owner okay. you know the pre the previous uh uh what do you call it uh uh, secretary of the union was Sir Thomas. He was knighted, knighted for his services to the shipowner. So I'd come from a union that had been completely dominated by the bosses, the ship owners okay. and then coming to uh, to jump and ship, and then get uh, I'd been arrested on the, on uh, uh, in Sydney on that Nottingham and and put in front of the children's court. You know what I mean? So that I'd actually been through the court system in in uh, in Aussie, but. My first political arrest was uh, was basically in in Redfern at the big we the the first big land rights demo okay. was uh, laid by all the couriers from uh, from Redfern and I, I I didn't get out of the park I, I uh, helped my my mate Peter Barton another uh, organizer Peter Barton from the uh, New, New South Wales BLF. Okay. he got arrested and I was hanging on to him so they, they put us in the back of the 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 dog box together, uh, and uh, I spent the night with uh, with some of the most well, uh, Bobby Pringle, the late Bobby Pringle, the late uh, Jones, uh, the secretary and the president had been uh, arrested, and uh, but uh, Tom Uren, Tom Uren, the great and late late great Tom Uren, who spent uh, that all that time in the death on the death railway and survived the death railway after Changi. Tom Uren was in the cell with me, and I didn't know his his, uh, his history. But okay. we sang, we sang all night. We all sang in the in the cells at Central uh, Police Station. We sang all night, and then uh, the next time I was arrested was at uh, a picket line uh, where 32 was arrested uh, on a on a picket line that was the scabs were working, okay. and uh, and that was the second time. So it was twice in the, in a couple of uh, only a few months, and and McMahon was uh, in power then. Uh, Billy mcMahon big, Billy big ears uh, and uh, that's when I started uh, when when the rest started coming uh, uh, and uh, we 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 beat the I haven't paid any fines either we all got fines, but I haven't okay. paid any of them fines. they're still outstanding that's forty odd years ago, you know what I mean because I, I never pay fines, you know, fuck the fines, you know <laughs> you know I'd rather go to and do me time than pay any fucking fines for that bosses put on you
7: yep. OK, if we can fast-forward to today, when uh, you're a member of the CFMEU, yet another uh, union under attack from the uh, Conservative government and employers, and uh, you've been a supporter of the rights of the, this nation's first uh, people. Uh, you've always acknowledged country and elders when speaking at the CFMEU branch meetings, uh, yet, sadly, this has not always uh, been well-received by some members. No, no, that's, that's
3: right. I'm, I have, uh, since... Uh, since uh Mabo, yep. 90, what was that, 93, I think, uh, I have acknowledged uh, that I have, and I have also acknowledged this uh, coming here, that I've benefited from the, like we all have, yep. every person's come here and whose families come here 200-odd year, years ago, 223 years ago, have benefited from the from the, the gen. And that's a fact of life. I have, uh, wherever I speak, whether it's on a job, but, but especially at the management, I, I acknowledge... Where I am on behalf of my family, which is, which is, uh, is is, is culture. Okay. Where, where, where wherever wherever you go, you acknowledge whose land you are on. And in the case of the uh, of the the Melbourne branch, it's 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 the Wurundjeri people from the Kulin Nation. And I have always got up and spoke, and not 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 well received for a long long time. Never. Uh, uh, by the, you know, I'd say by the majority, I was uh, I was uh, looked at as being, and always facing. I, n- I never ever talked to the back of workers' heads, so I always faced the branch meeting. Okay. People talking, not acknowledging, not very well received by by people on the on the top table. But it's all changed. I've got to say, it is all changed. I am so um, I'm so proud of uh, uh, the first branch meeting of this uh, of this year. Okay. On, on February, which was uh, the last uh, Wednesday of the month, chaired by the president, Ralph Edwards. Uh, Ralph Edwards uh, acknowledged the Kulin Nation, uh, acknowledged where, where the branch was, and unanimously supported by the, by the branch. Okay. Unanimously supported.
7: That no, was, there was uh, no doubt through your. Uh Tireless efforts in speaking at those branch meetings over well, the many years yeah. and the education uh, certainly paid off.
3: Yeah, I am so proud of the of the of the branch. I am so proud of uh, the branch uh, that uh, it uh, it took it took part. And on the first uh, on the next branch meeting, which was February, that was uh, sorry, uh, March, okay. uh, last month, the last Wednesday, I moved the motion. Uh, uh, assistance assistant uh secretary Sean Reardon seconded it. I don't mind mentioning words because I'm so proud of the and Sean's always been a great supporter of our family, you know, in the death and custody and that. Okay. That we had no... our one of one of the one of the deaths in custody we we, 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 we had in our, that was very public. Uh and it was uh Thirded, I have to say it was thirded. I've got to say that uh, Mick, Mick Lewis, who was a Gallagher organiser, thirded it. Mick has always been a great supporter. Uh, and I know I'll miss, but I will say that that was the, the, the... and unanimously supported by the by a very big branch meeting. Big branch
7: meeting. OK, What what was that motion, Davey?
3: The Sea of Mew will not cross any picket line to... To help uh, destroy the communities in Western Australia or anywhere else, cross. Yeah, they they will not cross any picket lines, and uh, basically they will defend the communities. That's what they're saying.
7: They okay. will
3: defend the communities.
7: And this uh, motion has been endorsed uh, nationally across all CFMEU branches across the country.
3: Well, it was uh, it was uh, at that br- branch or secretary was in Canberra at the time. John okay. Shetka was in uh, in Canberra at the time, and uh, it was already being. Uh, they, 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 they uh, and Michael O'Connor and and Dave Noonan were in uh, Canberra di- discussing things that are with the crossbenchers, you know, and uh, it was already, uh, uh, and I think the the C put it on the national, uh, you know, the website. You know what I mean? I can see It's a very powerful statement, you know, from the from the the major, one of the major unions in. Uh, and uh, and I know my uh, the MUA, my old union, the, when I was in the C- C- part of the amalgamation, the C- uh, C- uh, Siemens Union and the WWF, yep. the MUA. That's that's the amalgamation. They they are in the same uh, situation. They will not uh, they will not uh, help destroy the, the communities in in Western Australia or anywhere else. You know.
7: Okay, Cause so it, with... cause
3: it's not just Western Australia where it's getting attacked. It's in Victoria as well. You know, You've got to remember that.
7: Okay, so with these two unions um, endorsing these motions, will we see uh, an emergence of a modern day uh, green bans take effect, Davey?
3: Well, you can only, uh, the only way the environment can be saved is by people supporting First Nations people. It's, it's, there's no other way. Because if you start destroying the people of the land, you destroy the land. As we can see, Twiggy Forest, uh, BHP, uh, Billiton, uh, Rio Tinto they are the biggest destroyers of the environment anywhere in the world you know I mean all over the world they destroy that, that Brookfield multiplex who who, uh, who have again scabbed on the union in, in Western Australia you know the, some of the people there okay. Brookfield multiplex 93 billion dollars billion dollars worth of uh, projects you know and you know what they what they do they mining everything in the world they, they, they do to destroy the and Brookville's a big Canadian company, so they say, you know, big okay. multinational. You know what I mean? So they're, they're one of the main, uh, main uh, culprits.
7: OK, and that's, uh, that's quite clear why Abbott wants to close these communities down in the west, uh, remove the people from the land, which is an act of genocide, to mine that land for resources. Again, those big mining companies that you've just mentioned.
3: Yeah, and and, and you've got your scabs in the uh, union movement, you know, your, your Martin Fle- Martin Ferguson, you know Martin Ferguson and company, you know what I mean. Who, who, who are already millionaires, millionaires the their their their, their, uh, their collaboration with a with a with a multinationals. You know that's all. He, he's a big collaborator. You know Martin Ferguson, definitely. He's he's one of the one of the sellouts. You know among among many.
7: Oh, that's right, Ferguson, the ex-leader of the ACTU, now on the uh, Mines and Metals Resources Board, is it? Oh yeah,
3: and 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 will become a will become and is a very wealthy man through it, you know, like Hawke, you know, Keaton's a very wealthy man through uh, through uh, collaboration with big companies, you know, they're all they all they all line up with the companies when it uh, when they you know after they've served them in Parliament, they all line up with the they all get the Big handouts afterwards, you know, yeah. and, and that's the thing we got to do. We've got, we got we we definitely got to unite with a with a Labour Party because we've got to have a broad front to defeat. You know, it's part of a. We have to have a broad front. You know, with people in the Labour Party, who are Dinkum, and uh, and there's plenty there who who want to be part of the, you know, the save the uh, and protect uh, and stand alongside First Nations people. The Greens, you know, definitely you know and, and anybody who 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 who, who comes on, on cuz it has to be a broad front you know we can't we can't isolate ourselves we'll be defeated if we're isolated
7: and that's right the slogan workers united will never be defeated is uh, more than a slogan it is uh, the truth davies thank
3: the solidarity from the northern nation uh, all the all the nonga nunga kuri mori all the first nations people have given so much solidarity. I want to thank the RAAF, the RAF, Anarchist, I want to thank the, the BLF, Dalwood. And I want to thank the New South Wales branch of the CFMU, Barkles, the Sexy. They've been so solid. And the National Office of the CFMU, Michael O'Connor, Dave Noonan. I really want to thank them for the solidarity. And especially the rank and file of the CFMU. The rank and file of the CFMU are, are shown. They're well in the fight. And I want to thank them all, you know. And if anybody I've forgotten, and the rank and file members who, uh, who have always been there for me, I'll, they know who they, who they are. And thanks very much for, uh, for this, you, you as well, Marcus. I want to thank you.
7: Yeah, thanks for coming on Rank and File Radio. Davey, talk about your life in struggle and the motion that you had successfully passed by the CFMEU.
3: And I really want to thank my, my family back home in the Shetland Islands. And I want to thank my ancestors for keeping me strong. They have kept me strong, my mum and dad and my ancestors. And I really want to thank my comrade, uh, Jack Mundy, who's been with me all this time, you know, 40-odd years. He's been my great comrade and, and, and like like my dad to me, I really uh, I really love Jack Mundy.
7: Uh, thanks for joining us on Community Radio 3CR. Uh, this morning to talk about your lifetime of struggle and the issues facing... They are First Nations people, so thanks for being the guest today, Davey. And that concludes the two-part interview with Davey Thomason, a lifetime in struggle. This has been Rank and File Radio, and I've been the presenter of the program, Marcus Harrington.
2: This is Irene Bolger, former Secretary of the Nurses' Federation in Victoria. Throughout the nurses' dispute in 1986... and let's make 3CR the only source of information to an information-starved, dumbed-down Australian community. Written, authorised and spoken by Neil Mitchell.
5: Hi, my name is Lex Wharton, and I listen to 3CR and I hope you do too.
3: I hope that you could support 3CR in its Radiothon because 3CR supports the fight for communities and support in all areas of struggles. So please listen to
6: 3CR. Just going to say, um, Lynn, just before we put Kevin Healy on, that first half hour was a pretty heavy half an hour.
1: Yes, it's very moving. Yes,
6: yes. Um, the, the The good thing is that We have 3CR where we can look at the alternative side of the presentation the general media does out there and just, you know, how people think things through differently and and present uh, not an alternative, the real stuff that goes on war and the aftermath of it in the short term and the long term. Well, the
1: thing is that, you know, Australia is still involved in sending people to war That's and right. um, and we, we do know, you know, bits and pieces on the news that those returned servicemen also suffer um, more in the peace than they suffer in the war and that it goes on and on. And the, you know, the, I can't remember the figure off the top of my head but the number of homeless um, vets in Australia at the moment is absolutely staggering. You know, vets who, who've been involved in the Iraq or um make up a large proportion of the homeless population um you know a lot of them have have I heard someone interviewed quite recently who'd left his wife because he'd become violent towards her and he knew that, Mm. you know, that that would happen again. And so he basically left his wife and left left the kids and and the house and everything, and and so he was homeless because he couldn't afford to find a house for himself. Um, Anyway, I mean, there are many, many, many stories and they go on and on, and so I do think that whilst it might be painful to have a look at some of the stories that we talked about earlier... um, it informs us in a way that's, I think, much deeper than simply having, you know, a philosophical, political you know, attitude against the Iraq war. Yeah, and, and underlying everybody's attitude against the Iraq war, I think, is the knowledge that war is really terrible for people. But sometimes it's one thing to have, you know, it becomes a bit of a cliche if you don't, from time to time, examine
6: the depth of what such a thing actually means. I think that's the thing. You, you have to have content behind that philosophy. Yeah. And I think this what we did you know, in the first half hour was giving people a little bit of a grasp of what that content can be. I'm sure there are lots of other things people can fill in with, but it's just one way to go to look at the real stories. And we know that many, many veterans have come back who then become anti-war activists, so many of them.
1: Absolutely, that's right. And, you know, one of the things that Bruce said that really that, that's really um, stayed with me because I first heard him speak at the Labor History Conference several weeks ago now Um is when he talked about you know the the guy whose photo he shot he, he showed with the with the injured face, uh, and before he he starts to talk about that man, he actually talks about you know the sort of the strong, um, upstanding, healthy young men mm. that are always portrayed as the soldiers who went off to the First World War, and after I've been thinking, I. An, You know, I see sort of pretty much everywhere you go, you see statues and photos of these strong, healthy young men. Yes. Um, And they go off to war and and there's no, you know, even in passing we might say so many were killed and so many were injured, but there's no real content in that. There's no filling in that. So all we have still is the images of these really healthy young men and we don't have images of the ones who are actually dead. The before and we after. We don't have images of their grieving families. Yes. You know, and the loss and the pain that's caused to those families from the loss of that person. And we don't have images of the injured. Um, and, so, and so just that in itself creates a myth
6: that's really removed from reality. Yeah. On that note, we'll go to Uncle Kevin Healy.
4: A weak solidarity, Bricky Team Lister, when that repository of morality and objectivity, the Lord Rupert of Wapping Sin, which we recall so abraded former socialist big supremo Julia Gorninghardt for breaking a promise about a carbon price, has launched a major attack on state socialist supremo who, who, abrading him for not breaking a promise not to build another freeway. Which, the experts tell us, will, like every other freeway, be the panacea to our transport problems before, like every other freeway, it becomes the problem demanding the next panacea, the next freeway. Well, it's just a daily expectation, a take after take on poor old who hoo with responsible, caring, business-class party spokespeople, including current big supremo tiny a bit more for the bosses, also stunned that hoo-hoo won't break his promise. I have set the benchmark for breaking promises, Tiny argued his case. Tiny was even more stunned that who-who wanted to spend the freeway money or a percentage of it on, wait for it, wait for it, public transport. I will not have public money wasted on public transport. Interesting that, because the whopping sin was so upset it devoted its first five pages to the unbroken promise, even dredging up in a box-pop eight people clearly chosen at random from all over Melbourne who denounced the government for its perfidy in keeping a promise. We'll lose faith in government if they refuse to break promises. So obviously, the whopping sin could not find one person in all of Melbourne who supported the government, didn't want the freeway. Well, they probably ignored the feral pests who were the root of this problem. But after five pages of wasting money, 640 million for nothing, screaming across P1, same day, True Blue Aussie capitalist review P1, lend lease the public purse to us, gives in on 1.2 billion compo. The new Victorian Socialist Government's threat to legislate a 1.2 billion penalty clause out of existence has forced developer Lend Lease the Public Purse and several European builders to walk away with no compensation. Hang on, listener, is that the same story? And the day before that, the Whopping Sin had several pages devoted to the treacherous anti social, anti community interest links between the state government and the evil trade union movement. Again, concerned, caring business class spokespeople aghast at this threat to democracy, bringing us Federal Assistant Economic Guru um, Josh Frydenberg attacking Socialist Party show trials in Senate inquiries into the tax practices of giant corporates political grandstanding embarrassing good corporate citizens he was upset the socialists argued the tax commissioner should not be allowed to maintain the confidentiality of corporates as has been the case for decades and it has worked well for true blue aussie uh in what way josh Uh, well it prevents them having to pay any tax on who should pay, thank goodness we've got David Shepherd of the Rich to advise us on what's good for us. Former Business Profits Council supremo, so important he's on all these corporate boards trying to steer this country in the right, the very right direction. Despite the resistance of those barriers to progress, pensioners, workers, unions, the old, students, the sick... Remember, David was appointed by Tiny to advise on where government could save, but he came up with lots of those necessary savings in last year's oh-so-popular budget. Well, he came out this week telling us the revenue problem we're told we have, raising revenue by, say, tax, is no solution. The solution to our problems lies solely in... Expenditure, or or more correctly, non-expenditure. We have an expenditure problem. Direct quote. The government hasn't convinced voters on the case for the tough decisions on spending. True Blue Aussie is still locked into unsustainable spending in sensitive areas like the age pension, family tax benefits, aged care, education and health. They're the problem. The unentitled thinking they have an entitlement and destroying this country. Uh, So the corporations are new paying taxes. No solution, David. 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 David, quick, quick. Smelling salts. David. David. Oh, dear. Oh, and a correction. Well, an update. We reported last week BHP, for bloody huge profits, was paying all of 2.5% tax via an arrangement involving flogging True Blue Aussie iron ore through Singapore and Switzerland and the Netherlands came into it. Well, apologies to bloody huge profits. Report this week the 2.5% was wrong. Sorry for that. The real figure is zero, as in naught. Something about a sweetheart deal with the Singapore government. The bloody huge profits boardroom choir was heard singing, Let me call you sweetheart all the way to the bank. Rio Tato the profits was mentioned in the same report, but no update on whether it's also paying zero or being hit with the crippling 2.5%. And the High Court made this sensible ruling that corruption inquiries like the one in New South Wales have has no power to investigate corruption. Well, limited powers, and commentators speculate that the demoted caring business class minister Arthur Sins of Dunas, who as caring business class party treasurer had no idea where the money was coming from, and as chair of this water company, had no idea the company he chaired was donating to the party of which he was treasurer, no idea can now have any risk of an adverse finding thrown out because they have no power to investigate him. Well, the five majority of their honours were just interpreting the law and it makes sense to legislate that you can't be corrupt. The dissenting his honour thought it didn't make sense but 5-1 put him in his place. On principle and morality, what principled and decent people they are down at Cotton Don to Marketing who withdraw that a dress makes no sense unless it inspires men to want to take it off you sign in their dressing rooms after some narrow-minded women complained they considered it sexist and offensive. Whatever happened to a good sense of humour over the smart little lines concocted by the boys in the marketing department? Obviously, as they laughed at their clever wit, it never dawned on them some people, particularly non-men people, but then again a lot of men people as well, might just find it a touch sexist and offensive. So you'll now do the principled and decent thing. Uh, certainly, now that we got the publicity we knew we'd get. Brilliant marketing, eh? <laughs> Of course, cottoned-on to marketing is also cottoned-on to make cheap, sell very expensive through those happy, happy Bangladesh workers who provide their profits. Sorry, too cynical. Like so many True Aussie outlets, the cottoned-on to board sits around and says, Look, we must do something about world poverty. Let's start by making life better for all those poor Bangladesh women. See? pure altruism, wouldn't dream of exploiting anyone, especially women. And this self-promoting side as Dr Carl has stopped promoting tiny and team True Blue Aussies massively popular intergenerational report after complaints the report left a, a bit to be desired. Now, I must say, I've seen him doing this performance, but I've never listened, so until he withdrew from the promotion, I had no idea he was promoting it. Not that my interest in advertisements is a definitive example of their effectiveness, but... uh, Dr. Carr, why did you withdraw from this publicly funded campaign? I saw the light, or, as it turned out, didn't see much light after the proverbial hit the fan. A meaning... Oh, well, the fan turns clockwise and the... No, 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 not the technical, scatological details. Oh, well, when I did this ad, the ads, I didn't realise what was in the report. So you talked about advertise something you knew nothing about. Well, well, that's the science of advertising. And Woolworth's trillions got into a bit of trouble for profiting from the ANZAC name. Apparently it's a marketing title and you have to pay for it and the authorities would obviously be abashed at the thought that anyone would attempt to exploit ANZAC. Incidentally, there's a strong argument for getting out of a country for the next week or so, it's going to be unbearable. And finally on that, as we mentioned last week, as Lord Rupert flogs 20-cent honour train-killing coins for $3, a mere 1,500% profit, hopefully tax-free, he continues his dedication to educating dear little children. Every day, the half-page dedicated to flogging the coins featuring a dear little child telling us how much she, stroke he, realises how our true Blue Aussie values were forged on the cliffs of Turkey how we wouldn't be here if it wasn't for our failed invasion they don't explain that last oh, bit gosh, but it's, it's in the whopping sin so it must be true good morning
6: good, good morning. morning
1: indeed and um and isn't that is it isn't that uh, very fitting that that Kevin ended on the note of uh, Anzac the great nation building invasion which of course um, be interesting in a second we're going to talk to Humphrey McQueen and uh, Humphrey will be talking to us about... um, We're continuing the discussion we've been having with Humphrey about the accumulation of capital, but this time in particular how war relates to that accumulation. But before we go to Humphrey, we're going to continue the literary tradition that we started at the (laughs) beginning of the show and I'm going to read another poem and this one is also in the... um, is a poem that also talks about war uh, and and this one was written by Dennis Kevins, who many people will probably know He's a, He was a great poet who, um, who, who who wrote you know a lot of uh, a, a lot of anti war poems um, poems that supported the struggle for aboriginal land rights uh, and in this poem, he was very active in the anti vietnam War. Um, and this is, and he wrote this poem um, during that period. Why should I wear that new slouch hat, the slouch of Vietnam? Why should I share the napalm guilt of blundering Uncle Sam? Why should I hunt down peasant kids who fight for rights and rice? Why should I spill this hard-earned blood in a sucker's sacrifice? I think of my old uncles and their mates. "'who lie bone white "'on the far-off fields of Flanders "'now who promoted that fight. "'They'll teach you that life is precious, "'then they'll brush it aside like dust. "'But I won't give my life away, "'cause a brass ass says I must. "'A chilly dusk is falling here, "'the box-tree's shadows stretch, "'and through the ring-barked clumps "'I see the vanished soldiers fetched, "'the tall plume on the horsemen,' The slant brim down below, as though the mists of memory, the slaughtered slouchers go. There's young Mick, the cricketer, from Frosty Yukon Bean, and Paddy, Tom, the skinner from the southern riverine. And troop on troop, the squadrons pass, the sun across their cheeks, clay cold and pale as cellar grass, and not one soldier speaks. The slouch of brave Gallipoli that blinded the digger's eyes, the slouch of bloody Passion Dale where the shell deck case still cries, the martyrs hanged in Changi, the heroes killed at lay, but the slouch of jungle paddies is a slouch I cannot pay. Why should... I wear the new slouch hat, the slouch of Vietnam. Why should I share the napalm guilt of blundering Uncle Sam? Why should I hunt down peasant kids who fight for rights and rice? Why should I spill this hard-earned blood in a sucker's
6: sacrifice? That's an amazing poem.
1: It is an amazing poem, isn't it? And this yes. brings. Uh, yes, it's Humphrey's um... on air too.
0: Yeah. Morning, Humphrey. Good morning.
6: Good morning, Humphrey.
0: Good morning, both. Yeah.
6: I was just um, going to say that um, all your writings that you're going to talk about today is on the web page. Has been loaded, so people who want oh, good. to thank you. Yep. Thank you. All no right. Problem. Let's go.
0: Now, as you say, we're going to continue um, our discussion about Marx and capital and accumulation, but um, paying, I suppose, as we've been saying, as everyone's been saying until we've just started this conversation, uh, linking it to what we're going to have in the next week and next few years about it in relation to how war and accumulation might go together. How is it that war in some way might have, have, you know, assist in the expansion of uh, capital? Because, I mean, it's pretty easy to see how armaments might increase the profits of an armaments manufacturer. Um, But as we've been saying, profit is not the end of the capitalist system. That's not what it's about. It's about getting the profit and investing it so you get a new round of accumulation and expansion. And it's not quite so easy to see how that applies to the entire capitalist system when what you're doing is destroying things. So that's what we're going to try and say a few things about this morning. And I thought I'd begin with... Something that used to be said, uh, I haven't heard it for a while, but I suppose many people will remember it, and that is the neutron bomb. And Mm. it was said at the time that the neutron bomb was the capitalist bomb because it killed people but did not destroy any of the capitalist uh, uh, property. Now, that that sounds fine, but of course it is wrong-thinking. That's not how capitalism concerns itself. Um, For the capitalist, uh, what's important is that it has one particular kind of property. That is human labour. That it has bought our capacity to add value. That's the single most important thing for it. Of course it needs machinery. Of course it needs plant. It needs transport. All of those things. But those things are dead labour without living labour, to make those dead embodiments of previous labour contribute to the uh, expansion of uh, value, then all that property in the world is of no use to it whatsoever. So it's people that are important not in a moral sense, they're not saying, oh, you know, human life is, you know, is terribly important and the individual human life is the supreme value. Value for them is about our capacity to add uh, value for them to expropriate. And so thinking about the neutron bomb the right way around, I think, is a big help in introducing us to thinking about how capital might go together um, now we I mean there's quite a lot of things that you know that that we can and 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 should say about this but one of the other things of course is that they also need people as consumers because when we've added the value for them it's of no use to them if it just sits in the warehouse I mean if the neutron bomb went off and all the all the customers were killed, but all the products, all the commodities were still stacked up in the warehouses with all this surplus value added into them, it would still be of no use to them Mm. because there would be no profit taken out of that because the things hadn't been sold. So the surplus value only becomes profit once it's gone into the market and been sold and that gets back to them so they can then uh, reinvest. So... People are important for two reasons. One, as wage slaves, so we can add value, and then as consumer slaves, so we can consume it and turn our own surplus value into profit for for the capitalist class. So human beings, as as a form of capital, which is what we become when they buy our capacity to work for them, we become a part of the capitalist uh, form of. Capital, And that's you know, one of the other things that people sometimes have a bit of difficulty understanding as to how labour can at some point itself become part of uh, capital. But when we think of the neutron bomb, that slogan that it was the capitalist bomb gets everything the wrong way around. Uh, property is important, as we said, but human labour and then human consumption... They're the drivers. That's what makes it possible for the system to keep on uh,
6: uh, expanding. Can I ask so you a question that's there, the Humphrey? Thing I wanted to say. Sorry, can I just quickly ask you a question there, Humphrey? If humans, as you say, are the, the, the consumers and the uh, contributors to surplus value, how does war then become profitable for the capitalists? Because you're destroying both usefulness to the capitalist?
0: Well, I mean, as I said, it's very profitable for armaments manufacturers. I mean, that's not the problem. You know, individual firms in particular sectors of the economy. The difficult question that we have to ask ourselves, um, and, I, and I don't know anyone who's come up with a kind of totally satisfactory answer to all the aspects of this, and that's one of the things I was going to go on to say. Um, but what we're really concerned about is how war as a total social activity, contributes to the expansion of all of capital, not just to the bits that are owned by, say, uh, you know, the big uh, aeronautics corporations and the, um, the space people that are making these, you know, uh, billion-dollar uh, fighter-bombers and things. It's very e- <clears throat> very easy, I think, to see. Of course, even, even even the threat of war can make a lot of profit for them. But it's how... The whole system can expand through it, and one of the few people who I know who's attempted to answer this in Marxist terms <coughs> was Rosa Luxemburg. And <coughs> before the First World War, she wrote a book called *The Accumulation of Capital*, which is, in a sense, what we've all been talking about. And the final chapter there deals with the whole question of uh, militarism and accumulation. Uh, and she's one of perhaps the only person I know who tried to go back into Marx's uh, whole categories in the three volumes of Capital and link it to how military expenditure might uh, expand the whole system, get beyond the question of this firm or that firm, but to look at the accumulation of uh, total uh, aggregate social capital in, in Marx's terms. Now, there's a lot in that chapter, and it's worth people chasing up, but <clears throat> there are a couple of her arguments which I think um, are pretty crucial and I mean, one's pretty obvious in a way when you think about it, and that is that <clears throat> war is used to control and grab uh, resources. Now, those resources, of course, can be uh, human resources as well, as we've been saying, so you get control of, of other Big sections of the population in other parts of the world. Either you get access to them, you can sell them things by invading them or beating them back uh, so they can't uh, resist your products anymore. Uh, but you also want the raw materials in those places. Now you don't have to conquer them to do this. You can have, you know, neocolonialism. Uh, you can have a situation where, where your power is so great uh, militarily and financially that these people are uh, then you find agents within that society who will work for you. I hope no-one think, thinks I'm talking about Australia when we're talking about this. <laughs>
5: um,
0: but you know, uh, so that military power is then very important in getting your hands on the physical uh, resources, the wealth of the natural world that the capitalist needs in order for human labour to then add value to those uh, physical uh, raw materials, so that's the first way that um, uh, so, so we can, you know, add value to it. I mean, you know, that was true in the 18th century when capitalism was getting started. It was true when they seized parts of Latin America and the Central America to grow uh, sugar and tobacco. But at the same time, they were invading uh, Africa to get the slaves to send there to work all this. So, um, I mean, that's ways in which war certainly gets those resources and expands capital. Today, in the 20th century, the last 100 years, you'd have to say it's not sugar or tobacco so much, but the one big question of uh, petroleum, uh, oil, and those spe- specific kinds of resources. So that's the first thing. Now, her second argument gets more complicated. Well, I think it's in some ways... A much more significant one. It is that, okay, you've got these armed forces, you've got to pay for them. So you raise taxation. Hmm. And where does tax fall? Again, an issue not a million miles away from us today. And what she shows, of course, is that, you know, what Mark shows is that all taxes eventually come out of the surplus value that um, human labour adds. Um, you know, that whether it's directly, whether it's in play out of- insurance companies, the whole of the financial system grew up out of the national debt, which was dependent on the fiscal naval state in the 18th century, so that the foundation for capitalism that gets really underway around 1800, so it takes about 100 years, the Bank of England, which is a private concern, actually manages all of this. You buy the shares and you pay your taxes through the Bank of England. And the Bank of England becomes, as the Prime Minister said in the 1770s, as much a part of the Constitution as Magna Carta or the Bill of Rights. So that that's the other vital bit as to how the growth of the resources trade uh, and the naval's role in that indirectly has this huge importance for the creation of a modern capitalist system through the 18th century that lays the foundation for what we think of as modern capitalism from the 19th century onwards. So that's one other important area. Uh, Now, there's more than we're going to be able to say, but one of the things which I do want to give is a little case study of what happens in the 20th century. The DuPont Corporation. Now, they started to make explosives around 1800 they'd fled Napoleon, uh, gone to the United States and started to make explosives over there. By 1900, they made a lot of money over the Civil War, good example of how an armaments firm can make profit as a single uh, uh, firm or corporation. But that doesn't deal with the question of the accumulation for the whole of the capitalist system. Around 1900, one of the... The inheritors of the original firm wanted to expand it. His uncles and his brothers didn't want to. They didn't want to take the risk. They didn't understand what he wanted to do. But he won through and expanded sensibly enough, if you in explosives, into the uh, production of other chemicals. Uh, but he also got involved in the production of automobiles. And most people, I think, will know that, you, that the DuPont Corporation makes General Motors. By Mm. by by 1912, before the First World War, the DuPonts have expanded with explosives, chemicals and uh, automobiles. In the 1920s, they go one stage further. They add a financial arm, which lends people money to buy the cars. So you've got this consumer thing going on as well. So you now have... The DuPont Corporation, as we now understand it, this huge corporation with multi-divisions in it, and it does something else now, which is vital for modern capitalism. We talked in the 18th century how institutions are established, like the Bank of England and the national debt and the tax system and those things. In the 20th century, the great invention is the modern corporation. One of the heads of DuPonts in the 1950s said, that the modern corporation with its multi-divisions because the danger is if you try to do everything in the one company it gets so big you can't control it but you can't you want to hold on to all these bits because they're all profitable for you so you set up a corporation that has a division that does automobiles a division that does the finance and these things and yet it's all within the same organisation now we take that for granted today but it didn't always exist new things happen Capitalists have to get inventive, and one of the inventions was not a new chemical process, not a new um, design of a car or something like that, although they did a lot of that. Um, The great invention out of the DuPonts was the modern corporation. So what we could see, we could follow through and see this as a way in which the armaments industry that had grown in the 19th century through DuPont laid a foundation for this expansion into chemicals automobiles uh, finance a modern corporation so that's another way of thinking about how war making can contribute to something beyond the area of war making itself uh, so that's just a single uh, a case study of the things that go on there uh, now, so, so the can thing you... I know everyone's probably wondering why I haven't spent more time talking about is the military-industrial complex. Mm. Um, since President Eisenhower said that in his um, final speech uh, as president in early 1960, the left has seized upon it, and I think it's become a cliché, and people use it as an answer rather than beginning to ask questions about how a capitalist system works. So I think we need to remind ourselves that the military-industrial complex is nowhere near as important in the expansion of capital as it used to be or indeed as many people on the left uh, believe it to be or in some ways, I suspect, want to believe it to be. Um, I I don't want to go into great numbers about this. As you say, all the details are up um, uh, on the 3CR website so people can get this. In 1953, 13% of the growth national product in the United States went on um, uh, armed forces in some way or another. 13% in 53. 50 years later, almost, I mean, 2001, before you know the, the attacks on the towers, uh, it had gone down to then to 3.4. So in 50 years, almost, it had gone from 14. That is, fallen by three quarters of the percentage of the gross domestic product in the United States. So, if war is not driving the system, then what is? Well, medical costs 13-15% going on over there. But household debt was the great driver. Uh, And we saw that build up and build up and build up until the crash 2007- 2008. Mm, The drivers in the capitalist system in those 50 years, moved away from the military-industrial complex into other things within the society. Now, I just want to end with something that I think is you know, perhaps most important of all about this. We've been talking about the role that armaments play. Um, but one of the things we have to say when we look at the failed invasion of Turkey, uh, but what was going on there... Well, there were plenty of opportunities for the armament manufacturers, the merchants of death, as they were called, to make more profit. But that's really secondary to what we've been talking about. What were the strategic needs in the invasion of Turkey, of the Ottoman Empire? Well, one, they wanted to divide up the Ottoman Empire to get their hands on the uh, uh, oil resources. The French and the British had a deal to do this. The second thing they had to do was to get a warm water port to prop up the Tsar of all the Russias for fear that his armies would collapse on the Eastern Front. Uh, now, eventually, the monopolizers succeed in smashing the Ottomans and dividing up all of the petroleum resources between themselves. And as Field Marshal Wavell said, what we get is a peace to end all peace. So they succeed at that. Where they fail, of course, as we know, is to save the Tsar. So when we think about capitalism and war, as well as thinking of the expansion of capital, we must never forget that war destroys the system in another way. It's a risk, isn't it? What the Great War did was to arm the Russian people. Mm. It deprived the Tsar and his generals and the capitalists in Russia of a great monopoly, their most important monopoly, that is of armed force. Hmm. The people got guns. And in 1917, they used them against the Tsarist system and against the capitalist system. Hmm. So, when we think about war and the accumulation of capital, we've got to think about the things we've been talking about, but we must never forget that war has another effect on capital. And that all of the revolutions that have succeeded in the 20th century grew out of the fact that the majority of the population ended up being armed because their their masters, their capitalists, needed to send them into the battlefront and had to give them guns. Now, that was a great change. That's a very important aspect.
1: Thank you, Humphrey.
6: Thank you, Humphrey. That's very enlightening. So, we shall talk I to you again too. I can't hear you, I'm sorry. I know, it's a bit hard to have the conversation today because of your phone troubles. You're trying to yell at yeah, the phone. I know, I'm sorry. <laughs> That's all right, I, don't I, know I
0: was coming across okay. Yes, yes. you to yes. hear me at my end. I know, I'm sorry about that. But um, when I'm back on my own phone, uh, back in Canberra, um, we won't have that. Because we do have such good conversations.
6: <laughs> that's right. Okay, thanks, Humphrey. We'll talk to you again soon. Thank you. And I'm that's sorry the other show. Me. That's all right. Thanks.
1: Oh, that was pretty interesting, wasn't it? Yes. I mean, I must say, you know, that um, there was uh, in Iraq, you know, well, now there's troops back in Iraq, of course, but, you know, immediately um, after the invasion of Iraq and so on, there was just this massive flurry of industry um, going to Iraq, to rebuild Iraq, wasn't there? Yes. You know, to rebuild the destruction. And that's one of the things that always strikes me is that it's not just about the armaments companies, but actually the rebuilding that goes on after things are destroyed. And um, I think, isn't that one of the things that happens in depressions as well, you know, in in economic Mm -hmm. depressions, is that um, the means of production actually get destroyed and then they
6: have to be rebuilt. Yes, the same thing happened in Afghanistan. I'm going to put a song on so we can let the next show, Asia Pacific Currents, take on. Lovely. Nice morning. Yeah, good morning everybody. In the morning. Good morning, listeners.